0: Tonight, we are in the book of Revelation. So, I'm excited for for that. It's, uh, you know, a kind of tricky book for us to work through, especially on how to interpret it, since there's so many different uh, interpretations on it by different be- believers. So, let us start, though, by uh, opening in prayer. Lord, we... Love you, and we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you that you are a holy God, Lord, and we see that throughout this uh, book at the end of at the end of the Bible, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the revelation you have given us um, that John recorded, and we thank you that the hope it gives us, Lord, that you are returning for your church for your bride, Lord. I pray right now as we. Uh, spend time trying to dig into this book and really just looking at how to uh, faithfully interpret this word, uh, your word. Lord, I pray that you will uh, allow us to be sensitive to the Spirit, Lord, allowing the Spirit to guide our discussion, Lord, and our study. Lord, ultimately we pray that we could just fall more in love with you as we grow to know more about you in this word. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Alright. So, with Revelation, uh, how many of you all would say that you have quite a bit of experience studying this book, Uh, where you may feel like you could teach a lesson on, or a series through the book of Revelation? I saw Lonnie's hand raise. I feel like it's kind of a hit or miss with this book. I think... There could be plenty of people who have studied it a lot because it's a very fascinating book. Uh, but then also, because it's very fascinating, it could be very confusing. That, that could also scare people away at the same time and therefore not have many people have studied it. So I feel like it could go either either way with that. Uh, so let's try to work through it. As you can see on your note sheet, we have the historical context on top, And then we're going to talk about the literary context in order for us to try to figure out how to uh, faithfully interpret Revelation. And then we will focus more so on chapter 12, if we have time, at the end. And see how we could try to interpret chapter 12 specifically. Because obviously we can't get through all of it uh, tonight. So, if you're following along with me in your note sheet, you can see... Uh, the uh, century Christians lived, or the first century, um, I should say, so right first, the first century, uh, Christians lived in eager expectation of Christ's return. So within the first century, right, Christ uh, died and he rose again around 30-ish A.D., uh, and Christ was saying that he's going to return. Uh, and so there's been an eager expectation that Christ was going to return, and they've been waiting for that. So all throughout this first century, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now many of these people are getting old. Apostles are dying. John is the only apostle who uh, lives to a nice old age, who, doesn't, uh, who isn't killed, isn't martyred for preaching the gospel. So Christians have been waiting eagerly for Christ's return. Uh, However, around 60-ish years after Christ's death, so this was written around 90 AD, this book, and John wrote this on the island of Patmos, the Apostle John, Uh, around 60 years after Christ's death, some Christians began to doubt. That's the -the fill-in-the-blank there. So this is the historical context of what's been happening in the church. Uh, The church has been eagerly waiting for Christ to come. And, man, 60 years has gone by, and he still hasn't come yet. And they're getting old. Many of them are already passing away from old age themselves, if they weren't martyred earlier in their lives. And... So many of these Christians are beginning to doubt if Christ is actually going to come. So this is the setting uh, for this book. Uh, And this is how the church was feeling. As I said, John wrote this on the island of Patmos, uh, which is a Greek island. Uh, He was imprisoned there. Uh, And another thing that was happening was that there was intense persecution. So if you're following on your note sheet, intense persecution. And you see this uh, throughout... Evidence of this throughout Revelation, and I have some references there. Uh, you could see in chapter 1, verse verse 9 says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the uh, patient endurance uh, that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. So that's where we see he, where he wrote it, and he's saying he's a partner in tribulation uh, that they were going through as a church. And then you can see the other references as well uh, in chapter 2, uh, where it talks about the different churches that are going through different persecution and tribulation. Um, so that's, again, the context of what's happening. I have a nice block quote here of a description of what, it was, what the Roman emperor was like during this time. Uh, Michael. Do you want to read this block quotes, uh, and so we could get a better disc- idea of what it was like under this Roman emperor who was ruling during the time that John wrote this book?
1: It is the place, his palace, where that fearful monster built his defenses with untold terrors. Where lurking in his den, he licked up the blood of his murdered relatives, or emerged to plot the massacre and destruction of his most distinguished subjects. Menaces and horror were the sentinels at his doors. Always he sought darkness and mystery, and only emerged from the desert of his solitude to create another.
0: Alright, so he doesn't sound like a fun, loving ruler. Uh, this was written, as you could see it, the reference there, uh, by a uh, historian that lived during the first century. So this is would have been more firsthand account written, written during the time when he ruled. So it was not a fun time to live as a Christian, uh, or really just to live. It sounded like this ruler was very ruthless and murderous and bloodthirsty. So again, this is the atmosphere that's happening uh, around the Christians they're waiting eagerly for Christ. He has not come yet. Sixty years has gone by since he ascended up into heaven. And they still don't know where he is. They're being killed. They're being persecuted for this faith. And they're beginning to doubt. Where is the Lord? And this is the context of John writing this book. All right, so that's a historical context. Now let's get into the literary context. Uh, you could see literary genre and I have three genres there. Letter, prophecy, and apocalyptic literature. Uh, so, this falls in all three of these categories, and we're going to talk about each one. So, we're just beginning the literary genre, literary context of Revelation. So, Revelation as a letter. Uh, this is written like a letter in the beginning and at the end of the book. So you can see on your note sheet, the book begins and ends like a letter. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, looking at verses 4 and 5. Uh, If you have in mind, think about the other New Testament letters and how they start and how they end. It's very similar. Uh, John introduces himself. So John 4 through 6 of chapter 1 says, John, so the author of two, the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is And was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so it starts like a letter, and then we also see it end like a letter. So all the way at the back end of the book, uh, chapter 22, verse 21, it ends, The grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. A nice concluding uh, sentence for, for a letter here. So you could see that I have three bullet points under here. This suggests that Revelation is meant to be read as one letter to the seven churches. So there's a big discussion that has had, been had among scholars of whether the seven churches that we will see in chapters 2 and 3 of, of this book were separate letters just sent out to the churches separately, um, or if this book has always been together as it is now as one single letter. And the consensus is really that this has been one single letter and it was circulated to these f- seven different churches. Uh, so, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, chapters two and three address seven specific churches. Um, the beginning of chapter two, we have the church of Ephesus. Uh, then we have church of Smyrna. And then we have Pergamum, Pergamum, and then we have uh, Thyatira. I'm really bad pronouncing some of these. Uh, then we have beginning of chapter three, uh, Sardis. Then we have Philadelphia. Then we have Laodicea. So these are the seven different churches that uh, John writes to. Uh, and as we were looking at this looks like it was probably one single letter, this entire book, and it was circulated to all seven of these different churches. And you can see second bullet point under Revelation is a letter. Uh, the seven churches, churches are written in order in which the letter carrier would visit them from Patmos. So if you look at a map um, of modern-day Turkey where these churches exist, it would have gone in a loop, which is interesting. Uh, so it goes; they're written in the same order of how they loop location-wise, geographically. And then, last bullet point here: letters introduce major themes in the introduction that are developed in the body. So, let's talking about the genre of a letter, right? So, if you look at other New Testament letters, many times in the introduction of the book of the letter itself. It introduces a theme, a major theme that's going to be presented throughout the entire book and it's developed through that body. And that's also true in Revelation here. Uh, So, again, chapters 1 through 3 really act as a large introduction to this entire book. And then starting in chapter 4, we have more of the body of this letter. Uh, So... Let's look at this question here I have for you all. How can knowing this book as a letter help us in our interpretation of the book? Uh, Kind of building off of that third bullet point under Revelation as a letter is kind of where I'm heading with this question. We see a major theme kind of introduced within the introduction, within the first three le- chapters that is developed throughout this entire, the rest of the book, and throughout the t- entire rest of the book, and even ends well with that. So, again, I want us to look at these seven churches, and I want us to notice how each section, specific address to each church ends, and how that is then developed throughout the rest of the book. Uh, so, could someone read for us, we're going to start in Ephesus, chapter 2, verses, verse 7, just chapter 2, verse 7, so this is the end of that section of, to that church.
2: He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What translation
0: is that? Um, NASB. NASB. So the, to the one who overcomes, it mentions. In my translation it says, uh, to the one who conquers, I will grant uh, to eat of the tree of life. Which is interesting. It has a reference back to the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. Alright, could someone read... Uh, chapter 2, verse
1: 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death.
0: Okay, so the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, depending on what translation you have, will not be hurt by the second death. You see here the idea of a spiritual death. And so that's the end of the second church. Um, The end of the address to the second church. Uh, And then I need someone else to read chapter 2, verse 17.
3: The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one. Who receives it?: right.
0: So again, we have the idea to the one who conquers, again, is what my translation says. I will give him some of the hidden manna. Uh, it's making so many different references back uh, to the Old Testament, right And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Uh, and then it ends there. And then the fourth church, could someone read chapter two? starting in verse 26
4: through 29. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen bots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
0: And then, chapter three, starting in verse five, through six.
5: He who conquers shall be clothed dust in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. He will, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, we have
0: only two more. Uh, chapter three. Starting in verse 12
6: through 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then finally, uh, the end of chapter 3 starting in verse 21, 21 through 22.
2: He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so those are
0: seven different churches. There are uh, unique and personal things addressed to the churches, but we see they end very similarly to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, uh, and he's promising things to, to them. And I think it ends really well at the end of chapter 3 with the last church. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered. So we've seen the idea that it's referring to believers, but then also to the one who has conquered. and then So this is a major theme I wanted to see that is introduced in the introductory part of this book, conquering. And then we'll see that theme played out throughout the entire book of Revelation. So uh, with that idea, conquering, right? Uh, we're able to conquer with, with God's help, with the one who has conquered, And you can see how this could be very encouraging and hopeful for uh, those in the first century who have been going through this intense persecution that we had already talked about, uh, who are starting to doubt whether Christ is going to return. So quickly, uh, just to continue this theme throughout the whole book, uh, chapter 12, verse 11 says, And they have conquered him... uh, referring to Satan, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So we see that conquering, that overcoming idea, uh, even presented in the center of the book here. And then I just want to show how it ends this theme. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, again, ESV says, the one who conquers will have this inheritance. It's referring to the new Jerusalem that we see coming down on the clouds. So the one who conquers will have this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we see this idea of there are conquerors, they will be conquerors through Christ, and then this will be your inheritance if you are this conqueror. Uh, And you're this conqueror not through your own power, right? But it's through the power of Christ that is played out through this whole book. So this is a major theme we see uh, coming through Revelation, and it's worth studying as you uh, work through And so we see this as an aspect of it being a letter, right? A lot of New Testament letters, the major themes are introduced in the introductory part of the book, and then they're teased out throughout the whole body. So Revelation is a letter, second one, if you're continuing uh, with me on the note sheet, Revelation is a prophetic letter. So it's not just a normal letter. It's not just a thank you letter like Paul has written. It's not just an instruct, uh, a letter to give instruction, but it's specifically a prophetic letter. Uh, we see references to it being a prophetic letter throughout there, Revelation 1.3, uh, 22. 6 through 7, 22, 10, 22, 18 through 19. Prophecy includes both a prediction of the future and a proclamation of God's truth for the present. Uh, so that's the uh, two components that go with uh, prophecy a prediction for the future and a proclamation for the present. Many times when we look at a prophecy, we just focus on the proclamation for the future, but then we don't see the application then for the here and now. And so I would argue since this is a prophetic letter, there are obviously things for the future, but that doesn't mean there is absolutely no application for us today, here and now, and even for the original audience. So the question is, what proclamation of God's truth are the original audiences told to hold on to? Uh, What are some guesses, at least, that you think could be put as an answer to this question? There's a lot of future things foretold. But those who were reading this letter, those seven churches, uh, you could say, well, that specific ways they were addressed and the sin issues that they were going through in chapters 2 and 3, they could work on those. But for chapter 4 on, through the rest of the book, is there any application that the original audience could have uh, made? I
5: mean, just looking forward to the time that all that stuff was going to happen, right?
0: Looking forward to the time that's going to happen. So... Uh, take comfort in it, kind of like what we've been talking about, especially with the context of what they've been going through. Right, so that's good.
2: Anything else? I think looking at it, I mean, the question says, what proclamation of God's truth? Yeah. Are they told to hold on to? I think looking at God's faithfulness over time, um, it continues to talk about how, how God will be faithful mm-hmm. and how you can trust You know, this is what's going to happen and here's things from the past, but kind of looking forward uh, yeah. is what to expect based on his faithfulness. Yeah,
4: that's
0: good. I want us to look at verse 3 specifically, and this does tease out what you guys are saying uh, by using the word blessing or blessed. Blessed is the one. So even for the original audience, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So there we see it is a prophecy, right, a prophetic letter. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then we see also near the end of Revelation, it's the same idea. Blessed are you who read it, take refuge in it, Obey it, um, and some of those blessings that we are able to receive is, or are, are the blessings of comfort, right? Recognizing who God is, uh, the blessing of having security, uh, those those sort of things. The blessings that we receive through Christ, and we talked a little bit about those blessings last semester when we talked about Christ as our. Uh, uh, High priest, who is currently interceding for us, as he was then as well. So these are some key features of Revelation. So Revelation is a letter; it's a prophetic letter, and then thirdly, third genre layer to it; it's a prophetic um, apocalyptic letter. Uh, now I have Revelation one one here. It, in the very first verse says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Uh, The word revelation here is uh, from is the Greek word apocalyptic. Uh, It's where you could also replace it with that. Uh, And this is where it gets difficult, I think, for us. We understand what the letter is. We understand what prophecy is because a lot of the Old Testament uh, things foretold, but then we don't know many times what to do with the apocalyptic uh, lens or layer, I should say, to this to this book. So let's look through these three points under this section to uh, start to get a grasp of what this is. You can see this is a quote. Most scholars believe that the apocalyptic uh, literature or genre grew out of the Hebrew prophecy and actually uh, represents an intensified form of prophecy written during a time of crisis. So you see apocalyptic uh, components throughout some of the Old Testament books as well. Wherever there was a big crisis and there was prophecy being foretold of what is going to come, uh, apocalyptic literature is an intensified version of that prophecy. And They say intensified because they use uh, um, symbols, forms, uh, things like that in order to point to a future reality of what's going to come. So let's continue with these bullet points. Apocalyptic literature was well known to people around 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. So the original audience would have understood this genre better than we do today. Uh, So it would not have been as bizarre for them to read this. And then third bullet point, it uses visual images and symbols to portray the main idea. So there's a lot of visual uh, images and pictures trying to be portrayed throughout Revelation to make a point. And that's, again... Where it gets difficult for us because we want to understand well, what does this specifically represent? What does this image specifically represent? Uh, and that's good to pursue, but a lot of times uh, that's not necessarily the main point. But we will get to that. Uh, so, any questions though on the three layers of genre on, on this for the literary context? All right. Interpreting Revelation. Helpful tips in interpreting Revelation. First, and these tips I got from the book, Grasping God's Word. uh, Read Revelation with humility. I think that was a very good one to start with. Uh, There are many people who have strong opinions on what revelation means, uh, how to interpret every single symbol and sign. uh, And I think if someone were to tell you that they knew what every single symbol and sign, 100% what they were supposed to represent and what they do represent, uh, and they understood it perfectly and fully, and it's actually easy to understand, you should be cautious with them. (laughs) Because it's not easy. Uh, There are symbols and signs we can understand and we can know what they mean because Revelation tells us what they mean and we'll get to that. But then there's others that are a little tricky. And so that's why it's important to start with read Revelation with humility. Uh, And I also want to make this point We can know what's the main idea of what Revelation uh, is. The main idea is that God wins in the end. right? God is the conqueror. We could be conquerors through Christ no matter what tribulation we go through. And there's a lot of details in that to tell that main idea. Sometimes we could get caught in the smaller details where we miss the main idea. So sometimes if we don't perfectly understand all the smaller details, that doesn't mean we can't know what the book is talking about. We could still know what the main idea is, even if we don't fully, perfectly understand the smaller details. All right, helpful tip two, try to discover the message to the original readers. That's, the help, that's a helpful tip always, right? That should be our first step always is to what, ask the question, what did this mean to the original audience? Uh, there can be and there has been different charts and graphs and teachings on Revelation that have gotten so uh, detailed and uh, future-oriented where it almost seems difficult to believe that the original audience would have understood exactly all of those charts and graphs the exact same way you, many people have written them out, uh, that they would have understood that in the exact same way that we, we lay them out today. So, just again, with humility, uh, try to discover the message to the original readers. Third, don't try to discover a strict uh, chronological map of future events, kind of like what I was just mentioning. Uh, there are a lot of strict chronological maps of future events. And they're not necessarily bad, but they can also get in the way, I think, of, again, the main idea when we're trying to figure out maybe some of the smaller details that we can't know perfectly, 100% all the time. And Revelation isn't necessarily written in chronological order, though, as well. Uh, we like to have things in a nice linear chronological order, and we saw even with the Gospels, it's not always that way. So, don't try to discover a strict—and I think "strict" is a key word there—chronological uh, map of, of future events. All right? The point is, God is the conqueror, and we're able to conquer uh, through go through these tribulations and trials with him. Four, and this can sound troubling, but let's talk about it. Take revelation seriously, because it is God's word, but don't always take it literally. How can I say that about, about scripture? Figurative exactly. Figurative ling- language in there, and that's part of the apocalyptic genre. Right? There's symbols, there's uh, figures in there, there's images in there, and they portray a real thing, but the symbol, the figure, right, isn't necessarily literal itself, 100 percent of the time. So for I mean, there's m- many examples throughout Revelation, but quick example uh chapter 17 verse 9 chapter 17 verse 9 says this calls for a mind with wisdom the seven heads of seven mountains on which a woman is seated you're not going to take that literally in the sense that there's a woman sitting on uh, one woman sitting on seven mountains at once right so there's Figures of speech happening here, and so we see a lot of times women represent a nation uh, throughout this book as well. Whether that's Rome, whether that's Israel itself, or Babylon. Uh, so, don't necessarily take it liter- uh, literally all the time. Pictures, language, uh, picture language with symbols, images, and figures convey literal truth and describe literal events. So keep that in mind. And then fifthly, pay attention when John identifies an image. I think this is a key part of Revelation uh, that we need to pay a lot of attention to. So sometimes throughout the book of Revelation, John, the author, identifies what a symbol or an image does represent, and he says it plainly. And then I think, We could take that, and then when that same image or symbol is is used later in the book, I think it's faithful to take what he said it meant literally earlier and then also apply that later in the book. And that could help with our interpretation. So, for example, what I had said, uh, we could see in the beginning of the book, chapter... One, the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 20. So you guys could turn there. Chapter 1, verse 20, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, so I had described seven stars earlier in this chapter, that you saw in my right hand on the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, so he identifies what they represent, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then he goes into the specific seven churches. So for our example here, we're going to look at the lampstands. So right, they're not literal lampstands, but these lampstands represent the seven churches. And then go then all the way to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verses three and four. If you're following along, it says, and I will grant authority... To my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So I think it's fair to see this symbol, and we've already identified how John is using the lampstand. To represent churches, uh, so some then would see this passage and would apply that here and say these two witnesses are two witnessing churches, and I think that is a faithful way to interpret it. I think if you are familiar with the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins Jenkins books, he understands this in a very dispensational theological framework, where these are two literal people. Um, So, again, that's what makes Revelation tricky. Uh, But I think it's good to use the book to interpret the book, and this is one of the ways to do that. So, again, pay attention to when John identifies an image. That's a really important one, and he does that all throughout the book. Number six, look to the Old Testament and historical context when interpreting images and symbols. How can we know what the images and symbols represent literally? Well, this right here gives two ways that we could do that. Look to the Old Testament, see if there's any way the Old Testament uses them. Uh, Because John would have looked at the Old Testament and used similar language uh, to convey a similar point. Or look at the historical context and what the original audience would have May be understood as what this would have, the symbol would have represented. Uh, So, again, I want us to look at an example for this. Uh, I need someone to read a couple verses in uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Who wants to volunteer to look up passages in Daniel? All right, Michael. You want to turn to Daniel chapter 7. And then you'll be flipping to Daniel chapter 10 as well. Uh, And then I want someone to look up passages for us in Revelation, uh, which will just be in Revelation chapter 1. Who wants to read Revelation chapter 1 verses? All right, thanks, Beth. So we'll start with Michael. Michael, you can read Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and then jump after verse 9 to verses 13 through 14.
1: As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame, its wheels were burning fire. Yeah. I saw Oops, sorry continue I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed.
0: Alright, then now jump to chapter 10 and read just verses 5 and 6.
1: I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like feral, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude.
0: Hmm. All right, Beth, could you read for us? chapter 1, verse 7, then jump over to verse 12 through 15. Verse 7, then 12 through 15.
6: Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Are you 16
0: too? I thought that 15. 15's fine. So... The the point of that right is you can look back in the Old Testament Daniel for this example, and see a lot of comparisons. And what was being compared here? That we could where where are the things we could compare here? Uh, The description of of Christ or the ancient of days as Daniel mentions, right? And a lot of the description is very similar. And so this is an example of John looking back on how he's described in the Old Testament, and also describing him that way here. Uh, and it's not, he's not describing him this way here just because he knows the Old Testament, but this is also what was being revealed to him in the moment of it writing. All right, so that's an example of how we could use Old Testament to help understand the same image uh, here in Revelation. And there are many more examples of this you could do throughout Daniel specifically even. So, yes, Question?
1: When he wrote this, it was like old fashioned language then? Like, because it was Old Testament language that he almost copied word for word. Was that like old fashioned language that he was using? Or do you think that's what he's like? Do you think if we were to see Christ revealed to us in this vision today, we We would use use that same same language. language?
0: I mean, that's a good point. Like, I think we would use what is. Uh, regular for us to use, the words that are regular for us to use to describe what we're seeing. Uh, But I think he knows the Old Testament, right? And he knows these descriptions of the Ancient of Days. Uh, So it's a hard question to answer exactly, but I think uh, probably using the same language as the Old Testament on purpose.
4: So... Also, because this is a vision, yes, it, and, and even the burning of the tongue that put the thing on the tongue, it, it indicates to me that God put these words, and, and, and specifically, to him. I agree. So, so, while Ephesians might have been written to address a church in the language of, of that time... This definitely, due to the way it was presented, mm. indicated, "This is not me writing. this is what I'm being told to present."
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so there's all of that. So it's hard to say if you use the specific words specifically, because he was getting them from the specific revelation in the very moment, uh, or he chose to use them through the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, obviously we have to say that. Because that they were the same words that were used uh, in the Old Testament for describing describing it, but the point is is that it's very similar, so we could use the Old Testament to help understand and interpret some some of the symbols and ideas that are being portrayed in revelation uh, but yeah, I would say the Holy Spirit was obviously at play in specifically the words used, and another important i Uh, part to remember is that these were done in different languages as well at the time. So, obviously with Revelation being in Greek. So, Old Testament is is helpful. Historical context is helpful. And then seventh, above all, focus on the main idea and don't don't, uh, press all the details. This is what I had mentioned earlier. You could get lost in the details trying to figure out specifically why this specific word was used. And that's important, but keep the main thing the main thing in Revelation. All right, so let's try to do all this specifically with chapter 12. So if everyone wants to turn to Revelation chapter 12, we will go through the interpretive journey. These are the five steps that we've been talking about for a while now uh, and we're going to go through this these five steps with chapter 12 um could someone read for me verses 1 through 6 want to read verses 1 through 6 volunteer and then I'll get someone else all right Nancy and then someone verses 7 through 12
5: appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery, and another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to bear her child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. How far? Uh, through six. She brought forth a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. and The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she to be nourished for 1,260 days. All
0: right. Tom, you're going to pick up verse 7 go through verse 12.
3: And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they did not prevail, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and, the, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, and the one who had, and the one who accuses them before God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when. When faced with death, for this reason rejoice, you, you heavens and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. All right, can someone read uh, verse
0: 13 then through the rest of the chapter, um, which isn't a whole lot more.
2: When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, and off to make war, and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus.
0: All right. So, with the interpretive journey, remember the first step, as you can see on page three, grasp the text in their time, what it meant to the original audience. So what did the text mean to the biblical audience? So what's happening in this story? What are some of the major characters? We have a woman. We have a dragon. A child. We have God himself that's just identified as God. Um, we have Michael. So what, what's happening in this story? So when want to try to summarize what's what we read
5: supposed to be us, mankind. Well, we'll
0: get to that. Uh, But before we get to that, uh,
5: What does it look like? What's happening? So a woman
1: has a baby. All right. And a dragon tries to get him. Okay. And the the baby goes up to be on the throne. Then the woman gets put into the wilderness to hide for a long time. And then, uh, I got lost, hold a minute. There's a war with angels. The woman's again like hidden for another bout of time.
5: And how's it end?
6: Uh, with the water.
0: Well we have about water. We have this dragon. We have this dragon with the stars are thrown out of heaven with this war. And then when that happens, this dragon is trying to get after this woman now. Um, trying to persecute this woman. Uh, And with the water thing, uh, verse 15, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. He's trying to get this woman right, to sweep her away with the flood. He's trying to get her. I don't know how else to say it. Verse 16, but the earth came up with help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. And then I think it ends really well. You see verse 17, and the dragon became furious with the woman. So he's angry at her this whole time and went off made war on the rest of her offspring. So this woman has a child, has more offspring, whoever she is, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on, on the sand of the sea. All right. So, what, what could we do to help understand this, this passage? Did John identify any of these characters for us? Obviously, we know who God is. Uh, the red dragon, did he identify the red dragon? I have a
5: note from a long time study. Well, it's... He it was Antichrist. He was Antichrist. Okay. And she, and she, she represented the masses of people.
0: All right, masses of people. If we didn't have the study Bible notes, that's helpful, right? But in the text itself, does it identify verse who the dragon seven,
4: is? 7 says it's Satan. For the word Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back when he's defeated his throne. And it says, verse 9, that ancient serpent who's called the devil. And yes. So we definitely have that the dragon is Satan. Yes,
0: yeah, so there we have an identifier, right? So that helps. And then we can kind of see the idea of what was happening here when Satan was thrown from heaven along with the other fallen angels here. Uh, who is the male child? Can we figure out who that is in this text?
4: Indicates Jesus because it says it gives up to heaven to rule. Yeah.
0: So that's a good indicator for mm-hmm. sure. Um, yeah, and so look how it, it, it describes this male child. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So there, that's a reference to Psalm chapter two, uh, specifically verse nine, it refers to that. And uh, that has always been understood as a messianic psalm referring to Christ. So we can identify the dragon, we can identify the child. We know who God is. And this child is caught up uh, To God and is on His throne, and we know that happened at the Ascension, right? When Christ went up and ruled with is ruling with God now as King. Who is the woman? Uh, There has been some discussion on this uh, exactly who the woman is. Some people have suggested well, the mother of this child is Mary, so therefore it's Mary. But I think it's not necessarily Mary, right? It's it's more than that, Um, and. I think it's faithful to say the woman here is true Israel. Um, all of those who are the descendants of, um, or ultimately, um, the the elect, or those who are God's children, uh, they the child comes out of the tribe of Judah. So that's what it's referring to as the woman there. But then this woman has more offspring as in the rest of the church, all of those who are children of Abraham. I would probably apply it that way. But that one is a little bit more difficult, and there's different interpretations exactly on who's all included as the offspring from this, this woman. So, I think we have a good grasp of what the original audience would have understood. I think they would have understood these characters, how we describe them. So second step, measure the width of the river. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? So part two. What are some differences or similarities between us reading this and the original audience that would have read this? Think about the historical context. Think about what they were going through.
2: You know, part of the difference between us and the biblical audience is, especially for us not having grown up in a, for most of us not having grown up in a Jewish background, mm. there's certain language and context in, in this particular section that, you know, we talk of, like, look at verse tw- uh, verse 1 where it talks about a crown of 12 stars. Yeah. So there's some... Twelve tribes of Judah, so that would probably be a natural inference that they would make. Whereas for us, I'm grateful to have a study Bible, also yeah. <laughs> that you know helps make some context there. So there are things like that that the context would be a little bit more natural. It's just something that we have to kind of yeah. take into account as we look at the differences between us and them.
0: Yeah, and that's good. And so that's an example of looking back. To the Old Testament to help interpret uh, this as well. And I think that's a good, faithful way to, to interpret that. Uh, but when it comes for application, that's why this step is important. How do we apply this passage for us today? Uh, what's similar? What's different between us and them? Um, something that's similar that should come to mind right away is they suffer, we can also suffer as Christians, uh, but also that could be a difference. Um, we aren't suffering the same way as they were. I mean, we read what the emperor was like during their time, and so we aren't, we're not suffering at all in the same, uh, to the same extreme as they were, but suffering is something that Christians go through today as they went through then as well. Um, let's jump ahead to three because there's so many different things we could write for, for two. So, three, cross the principalizing bridge. What are the theological principles in this text? Uh, so, the reason why this comes after step two is you look at the similarities. Um, the principles are built off of or on the similarities. So, what's similar between them and us today? And what's a uh, Theological principle we could make, we could use to cross the bridge uh, to get into our town. If you remember the analogy we've talked about with the interpretive journey. Uh, This is one of the most difficult steps. So there are are a few I came up with. So I'll give one for an example. Uh, One is, there is a real devil that is opposed to God and is uh, bent on deceiving and destroying God's people. We see that here in this passage, right? So, therefore, spiritual warfare is real. We can make that application from this. That's an example of a principalizing bridge. Uh, what are some other things we could see from this passage that we can state in a way that's timeless, that's still true for us today, cultureless as well? So it'll still apply for us today. Um, what could be another one? I know we're running out of time, but... Does anyone have any other thoughts on principalizing bridge? Does God protect those?
5: God protects?
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he protected the woman.
1: And he's gonna protect the people
0: at the end. And he's gonna keep to protect his the commandments and hold his testimony. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wrote something like this down as well. Christians can expect to suffer for being faithful in their witness to Christ. And that could be a principalizing bridge. But then I think this might be a little bit more similar to what you're saying, Chris. Christians can overcome the devil by living and proclaiming the gospel. Of Jesus Christ faithfully. Oh, maybe that wasn't the right one. Satan has defeated, or has been defeated by the life and redemptive work of Christ. Um, but yeah. So there's so many different ways you can word principalizing. What was that? <laughs> I didn't get it at all. <laughs> well, I mean, these are just examples of some. There could be more than what I had written down. But I think uh, near the end of chapter 12. It talks about on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, you could pull that truth out and put it into a principalizing bridge, I think. And I think you're probably getting at that. So these are that's one of the most difficult steps. And then finally, or not finally, fourth step: consult the biblical map. How does our theological principle fits with the rest of the Bible? So I gave some examples. Next, we have to see if it contradicts with anything. Obviously, in Scripture, that's a step four. And then finally, grasp the text in your own town. How should individual Christians today live out this theological principle? So make an application of spiritual warfare. There's real spiritual warfare. And think of a specific situation that you could apply that in when you're teaching or when you're applying this passage to your own life. Again, there's, real, there's a real devil that is opposed to God and is bent on deceiving and destroying God's people. I think that's a very nice, concise one. And then you can make an application out of that, I think pretty easily, and that would be a faithful application from chapter 12. All right. I know that's a lot. Lord, we love you. And again, I thank you that um, you have given us your word. Lord, I pray that we won't be overwhelmed with the task of interpretation, Lord, especially when it comes to Revelation. I pray that you uh, will just continue to help us, Lord. Um, allow us to have clear minds and be sensitive to your Spirit as we come to your word to understand it, Lord. I thank you for the book of Revelation and all the truths it has um, for us, Lord, that you have given to us through, through John. Uh, we love you, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.